Rick Elias is a plane crash survivor, TED Talk speaker, and CEO of Red Ventures, a multi-billion dollar company. On this show, you'll hear conversations Rick feels lucky to have had with leaders, athletes, and innovators, plus three things you can learn from each. It's two people, 20 minutes, and three things with Rick Elias. Today, we'll hear a conversation with Rick's good friend and former CEO of Starbucks, Howard Schultz who just announced this weekend that he's strongly considering running for president in 2020. Rick spoke with him last year about his childhood, servant leadership, and that one time Bill Gates Sr. helped him stand up to a bully. This is Three Things with Rick Elias. All right, I I got a confession to make. I was giddy when Howard said I would be happy to come. Well, first off, I'm honored to be here. I'm a huge fan of your company. I'm a huge fan of Rick and his leadership, and if I could share anything with you today, it'd be my pleasure. In the brief meetings we had this morning with some other groups, uh, what I spoke about was uh, that it is a time in America and around the world where I think we all need to recognize that uh, we can't rely on governments, uh, that there is a lack of leadership and truth and that we as citizens, as business people, business leaders and corporations, the rules of engagement have changed and we need to do much more. And looking at what Red Ventures has done for its employees, the community, and how you're organized, it's really a, uh, it's a quintessential model for America. Uh, this is uh, the moment in America where we're all gonna be asked as we get older, you know, where were you? Uh, What did you do? What did you say? How did you help your community? I really feel strongly that uh, this is a moment in time where leadership is really required. We study leadership. We we know it when we see it. We know it when we don't. And I think the world and certainly the country is longing for truth, authenticity, and servant leadership. Please take us back to your childhood, to the vision of the kind of company you wanted to build based on your experiences? Sure. I grew up in uh, Brooklyn, New York, uh, in public housing known as the projects. My dad was a World War II veteran, high school dropout, and came back from the war, unfortunately, with uh, aspirations about the promise of America, but for for many reasons, it was unfulfilled. Uh, He had a series of lots of bad, blue-collar, tough jobs, And we suffered with the fracturing of the American dream and not having the resources and the money that would provide the kind of life that he had hoped for. And it scarred me. It it shamed me to be that poor kid. I carried that with me for many years. And even as I sit here today, uh, defined as a successful person, I still have those kinds of scars and vulnerability. I, I never dreamed that I would ever be in a position to start a company, build a company, let alone a company the size and scale of Starbucks. But in my mind, I was thinking about trying to build the kind of company my father never got a chance to work for. Uh, Can we build respect and dignity in the workplace regardless of education, gender, sexual orientation, ethnic background, race, can we do that? And so the entire company was based on the proposition of trying to achieve the fragile balance between profit and benevolence, defining the fact that success had to be shared. So almost 25 years before the Affordable Care Act, 
we became the first company in the United States to provide comprehensive health insurance to every employee, including part-time workers. We did the same thing with equity in the form of stock options. And, you know, Starbucks has achieved great success, but the hardest part of all this is recognizing that success is not an entitlement. It has to be earned and earned every day, and you can't allow hubris to set in on any level. Howard, I know you started as a Xerox salesperson. Tell us about that and how did that experience affect who you have become? I haven't talked about those Xerox days for many years, but my job when I got hired at Xerox, first off, is my salary was $1,000 a month, $12,000. I was living at home and I was giving half of it to my mother. And my job was, I, my territory was 48th Street to 57th Street in Manhattan from Fifth Avenue to the river, and my job was to make 50 physical cold calls a day, but I did not have the responsibility or the authority to make the sale. I had to give the lead to the tenured salesperson for six months. That, that pissed me off so much. <laughs> you know, and I never got any credit for any of the leads, but that rejection and that sense of humility uh, were, were great lessons. And you'd wake up every day, you'd take the train. I took the L train into Manhattan. How many people here from New York? Anyone? Okay, well, that L train is the worst train. And I lived in Canarsie, which is the last stop. No air conditioning. By the time you got to Manhattan, you needed a shower. But working for Xerox was a, a three-year great education for me. Let's, uh, the story of Starbucks, the reality is you were not the founder of Starbucks, no. right? No. And yeah. it is just such a romantic story, right? It's just this serendipity with boldness, with timing. Take us there. Okay. So, no, I was not the founder of Starbucks. I joined Starbucks in 1982 when they were getting ready to open up store number four. And in 1983, the founder of the company sent me to a trade show in Milan, Italy. And I had never been to Italy before. And I went to the trade show, but I would walk every day from the hotel to the, to the uh, convention center. And I kept walking by all of these coffee bars. And there was like three, four on almost every street. They were just so ubiquitous. They were everywhere. And I started going into them and enjoying myself and seeing Every day I would go there at the same time, I'd kind of see the same people. I'd recognize who they were. And it kind of struck me that there was something going on here in terms of the sense of community and the romance in the theater of espresso. Starbucks at the time, from 1971 to 83, was a successful Seattle small business, but only sold coffee for the home. So I raced back from Italy, told the founder that I had seen the future and it wasn't what you were doing. And he rejected it and said, we don't want to be in that part of the business. After a year and a half of kind of banging on the door, he finally said, we're going to open a store number five and we'll give you 500 square feet in a 2,000 square foot store and you can open up your coffee bar. And I was thrilled and we did. And the coffee bar was so successful, he hated it. <laughs> and he said, we're not going to open up anymore. And I said, I'm going to have to leave. I've got to follow my heart. And so I left Starbucks to start my own company. 
And then uh, about 17 months later, Starbucks got into trouble because they owned another company in San Francisco called Pete's. The founder came to me and said, the good news is I, I'm, I wanna sell Starbucks to you for $3.8 million. It was one-time sales in August of 87. And I said, that's, that's fantastic, uh, but I don't have the money. And so he said, I'll give you 90 days exclusive to go raise $4 million, and it's yours. Now, there's a story here, a really great story, if you want me to tell it. I'll, I'll be very fast. Okay, this is a great story. This, okay, so very quickly, I'm trying to raise the money, and I'm getting about halfway there. The founder comes to me and says, how are you doing on the money? I said, I've, I've got about $2 million raised. I'm confident we'll find the money, but I wasn't. And he said to me, I have a $4 million all cash, no deal diligence bid for the company, and I, I just think I'm going to have to take it. And it turns out that one of my initial investors went around me and was going to steal the company. And it turned out to be a titan, like one of the titans in Seattle, like a god. And how could I possibly stand up to him? So. I was in a basketball league, and I'm telling my friend the story at night, who's a young lawyer, like, you know, I was a young kid, and he says, you gotta come talk to our senior partner tomorrow and tell the story. And I, I said, okay, I will. So I get there at eight o'clock in the morning, and I get introduced to the senior partner of the firm, Bill Gates Sr. This is a true story. And I, I tell him chapter and verse exactly what happened, and he, he asked me two questions. Did you le have you left anything about this story out? I said, no. And he said, Howard, is there anything about this story that's not true? And I said, Mr. Gates, everything I've told you is 100% truthful. And he said, we're gonna take a walk. We're gonna go see the man. And I'm, I'm, I'm like, my heart is racing, I'm sweating. I'm, I'm, I can't even believe what's happening here. Bill Gates is six foot seven. And at the time, he was a towering figure in Seattle. And Bill Gates Jr., you know, the Bill Gates, was like nothing, you know. <laughs> no. no one even knew him. So we walk into the office, and Bill Gates Sr. says to him, you should be ashamed of yourself. And let me just tell you exactly what's going to happen. You're going to stand down, Howard's going to buy the company, and we're never going to hear from you again. Do you understand me? And the guy was like, he never said anything. We left the office, we're now in the elevator, and I honestly was starting to cry. <laughs> no, I, and I, I just said, Bill, I said, I said, Mr. Gates, by the way, I still have to raise additional money. <laughs> and he said, I'm gonna help you raise the money, and my son and I are gonna become investors. $3.8 million, August of 87, we bought the company, never saw the guy again. That is brilliant. Just absolutely brilliant. All right, so there's so many places I want to go. So um, what other lessons from that first phase of Starbucks? What, what other lessons do you think have proven to be timeless? Yeah. I, I think although we're in very different businesses and industries, I think there's a very strong common thread between Starbucks and Red Ventures. And I think it's culture, values, and core purpose. The, the currency of that, uh, regardless of the business that we might be in, is the driving force of building something that endures. When we had 100 stores and we were dreaming about 1,000, 
I knew that we did not have the skill base or the experience to build a company much larger than ourselves at the time, that we had to find people uh, who had that experience. You want to attract the kind of people who are coming here for the right reasons. We didn't start the company to get rich. We started it to build a great enduring company and we need people with like-minded values, whether we were small, medium-sized or large, to scale the company for the right reasons and embrace the original idea of balancing profit with benevolence, a social conscience, and sharing success. But we do not always get that right, and we have made mistakes. And I think the hard part is standing up and self-correcting, apologizing, and being transparent, authentic, and, and, and really truthful with your people, the mission and the objective of the organization. I think having the moral courage to challenge the status quo, to recognize that Every industry is being challenged today by macro trends that have nothing to do with our core business. And as a result of that, self-renewal, reinvention, self-cannibalization, doing things that really will break the glass and not everything's gonna work, but the mentality must be whether you are small when you start or large when you are today to maintain that entrepreneurial DNA that has, that has built the foundation of the company. And metaphorically, I'd say this, you can't build a 100-story skyscraper or dream about that on a very soft foundation. The foundation must be built so that it can absorb all of these new stories and all of these new attempts at innovation and change and mistakes and failure. But the foundation is not a foundation that is based on bricks and mortar. It's based on love, compassion, empathy, understanding. That is what builds great companies. So transitioning through your journey, this is your baby. You've grown this baby through 2000. You decide to step down as CEO. You go own the MBA team <laughs> in Seattle. Why did you step down? What happened in that eight-year period about you? Less about yeah. the leadership that came in. What did you learn about yourself, learn about your platform called Starbucks in your relationship to it? I would say when I think back at that time, I felt like I was repeating myself, and I wasn't engaged in the things that I love. I wasn't engaged in the creative, innovative process. I was getting bogged down with things that were based on what it means to run a public company, with the investor community, with the lawyers, with the finance people, and I just wasn't engaged in what the core business was. Uh, I was very unhappy and there wasn't a lot of joy. That was one. Two, my kids were at a very important age, and uh, my wife and I had been married for 35 years, but she had sacrificed so much in terms of what we had accomplished over these many years and I felt like I needed to go back and get some balance in my life and to devote that time to the family. I had to do that. And then the company got into real trouble, which was 2007, 2008. And the trouble we got into was that the financial crisis was, was upon us, but the administration of the company was making some very poor, undisciplined decisions, chasing the stock price and chasing growth as a strategy versus the outcome. And I never planned to come back, but some people said, why did you come back? And I came back because of love and responsibility 
and I stood up in front of the entire company the first day I came back in a room just like this, and I apologized and I cried and said, we as leaders have let you and your families down. And we've got to all recognize that for us to transform the company, we've got to face this we got to turn around, face the same direction, and believe once again in what we originally set out to do. And we went through a, a comprehensive transformation. And we did things that were un, unheard of. You know, we closed every store for retraining. And not retraining on customer service, retraining on making coffee. Because the previous people who were in charge, you know, you, you reward what you measure. What, what they were rewarding was efficiency and squeezing the profit out of every store. And as a result of that, the experience was becoming diluted. And we had to retrain people to understand that the experience we were creating was about human connection, community, obviously the coffee, but the environment had to be joyful. And that's what we lost. When did you know you got it back? I asked a question of our people during the transformation. I said, is there a way that I personally can get in front of 10,000 store managers? Because they are the most important people at Starbucks. So we went to New Orleans. And this was not a convention. This was not a team building. This was not some you know, parade. This was a $30 million investment at a time we didn't have it to bring 10,000 store managers to New Orleans to communicate the new vision for the company. And the first day of that meeting, we decided that in order to reaffirm our values, let's not have the meeting. Let's contribute 50,000 hours of community service in the Ninth Ward to the city of New Orleans. That's what we did. And that unto itself was an indication of how serious we were of reminding, reaffirming, and rekindling the fact that success is best when it's shared. And then we had our meeting. On the last day of the meeting, I was getting ready to speak to 10,000 people. And uh, about an hour or two before I was getting ready to talk, a few of my colleagues said, what are you gonna speak about? And this is a very important lesson that I learned then that I'll share with you. And I, I laid out exactly what I was gonna say. And they, and they said, you, you can't possibly give them that information. And it was a very important moment in time of what is the role and responsibility of the leader in terms of sharing truth and information. Because the information I was about to give them was, if we continued to stay on the course we were on, we were going to lose the company. And we had about eight months before we were going to be insolvent. That's how close we were to the end. And the speech was about sharing the fact that we were so close to the cliff. And what I was asking of them in terms of your personal responsibility to make a difference in your store with each other and with every customer. And I honestly feel if I did not share 100% of the truth of how vulnerable and how tenuous the situation was, I don't think the company would have been transformed because our people would not have understood what was at stake and they would not have taken it as personally as they did. And that was a great lesson, I think, for all of us. You can't lead people, small groups or large groups, if there isn't shared vision, shared understanding, and shared information, even if the information 
is the kind of information that you're afraid to share. I could spend hours here, but we gotta, we, you guys got to run. So I want to I close out. What can we as individuals, we as an organization, we as citizens do with the word trust moving forward? My view is we need to recognize that we are in a period of great volatility and it's very fragile. Our democracy has been based on single voices of people recognizing that they could make a significant difference in their life and in the life of others. Just think about the possibilities that each one of you have to make a personal difference in your life, in your family's life, in your parents' life, and in the life that you choose professionally. I'm here to tell you that my life, if you saw where I grew up and where I came from, the odds of going from public housing to here is virtually impossible. And I believe that the American promise and the American dream and the entrepreneurial spirit is more alive today than ever before, not because of failing institutions, but because of my faith and confidence in the American people, and specifically young people like represented here this morning. Sometimes there's not a word, so thank you almost doesn't seem like enough. You today inspire me to take this to a whole different level. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Howard, for our most inspiring talk. I have been learning from Howard for over 20 years. His first book, Pouring Your Heart Into It, is something that I still quote in business settings. But from today, I learned three things. First, companies could and should be a force of good. If you're a leader in any organization, it is your responsibility to use that platform as a force of change. Number two, winning is only success if it's shared with others. Bringing others along the journey is really what makes winning worthwhile. And number three, I think it's time for all of us to stand up. If Howard is willing to take the risk of running for president, what risk should we be willing to take? We all have the ability to make our country better today. If you're enjoying the Three Things Podcast, let us know. Be sure to rate and review wherever you listen to podcasts. You can connect with Rick directly on Twitter at Rick Elias. And be sure to check out additional content, videos, and more at our blog, threethings.redventures.com. Next time on Three Things, Nobel Peace Prize winner Lehman Bowie. Thanks for listening.